Anyway, yeah, uh, that is um, coming in the, the very near future. So, But in the meantime, get to know those who are sitting next to you probably better than you want to. <laughs> we have spent the, the last several weeks working through a section in Luke chapter 11 talking in some detail about prayer, this critical spiritual practice that I think most of us understand is fundamental to our lives as followers of Christ, but also a practice that maybe at times would feel a little bit inaccessible, or maybe it might even feel pointless, like we are just speaking words into the air and it's, it's fruitless. It, it can be difficult for a variety of reasons. Today we are jumping to the next chapter in Luke, chapter 12, and while the conversation here is no longer explicitly going to be about prayer. This new topic that we embark upon today is, in a way, the result of that conversation on prayer that we've had the last couple of weeks, and I think it is also going to continue teaching us something about the discipleship process. So we are going to spend the next two weeks in the passage in Luke chapter 12 talking a little bit about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is language that you will hear around here often, at least I hope it is language that you will hear around here often, because the kingdom of God is central to the gospel message. This is the good news. The kingdom of God is part and parcel of salvation. So we're going to spend some time talking about it in some detail. The title of this two-week, two-part message is The Kingdom Gift and grit. That's pretty clever, isn't it? See the two G's there? It's alliteration. <laughs> the kingdom, gift and grit. We are going to be talking about the kingdom and what seems to be two opposing realities of the kingdom, gift and grit. Or to put another way that is perhaps less memorable without that classic Pentecostal alliteration, gift or grace on one hand and duty or effort, or action, on the other hand. These concepts may seem contradictory. Which raises another question before we actually get into today's passage. What do we do when there are ideas in our Bible that seem to contradict one another? Is it possible to hold those in tension? Here are just a few simple examples of what I'm talking about. We could think of something like the immutability of God, the immutability of God. It's a big theological word that just speaks of the fact that God doesn't change. As we read explicitly in that famous section in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where it says pretty straightforward, for I, the Lord, do not change. I mean, you can't get much more straightforward than that. But then we also find numerous occasions when God seems to at least change his mind about a certain situation. Exodus chapter 32, following that golden calf incident, God seems to be intent on destroying the people for their idolatry. Moses pleads with God not to destroy them, and the text says God relents. Or Jeremiah 18, when God says, if, if the nation would turn from their evil, I will change my mind concerning this disaster. So 
any conversation about the immutability or the fact that God doesn't change. It's a complex conversation. Or we could think about Proverbs, which time and time again teaches something along the lines of this. If you do X, Y, and Z, what will happen? You will have a good, you'll have a long, you'll have a prosperous life. And then we are introduced to characters like Job, who seems to have done X, Y, and Z, and that wasn't his experience. What, what do we do with that tension? Probably the most popular seeming contradiction is between the words of the Apostle Paul in a place like the book of Ephesians, where Paul argues you are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not your own works that bring salvation. And then James, the brother of our Lord, comes along and says, yeah, but faith without works is dead. How do we reconcile these ideas. Now, as we argued at length last year during our series in the book of James, I don't think James and Paul oppose one another. In fact, we find statements like the one we see from James. We find Paul saying similar things throughout his writings as well. I think they're emphasizing different aspects of this reality that is the salvation of God, but clearly there is some tension that has to be dealt with, or at least that we have to exist with. And I think we find that same apparent contradiction, at least on the surface in the teachings of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12. So in the text that we're going to read this week and next week, we will think about this apparent conflict in relation to the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom a gift or is there work? Is there effort involved? Is there something required of us? Is it a gift or is it grit or could it be both? Can we just exist in that tension? Can those concepts coexist? Now before, and you can probably guess what I'm going to argue already, but before we get to our text in verse 32, I want to highlight something that's going on throughout Luke chapter 12 that I think will help us understand the main point that Jesus is making here. The idea of fear, fear, is a repeated theme throughout this chapter. Jesus says, you're prone to fear because of this. Do not be afraid. You're prone to have fear because of that, but don't let fear hold you down. In fact, in this chapter, there are four specific things that Jesus suggests his followers might be prone to fear, but he says you don't need to have fear. As author Marilyn Robinson put it, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And I think she gets that truth from Jesus himself, maybe especially a place like this in Luke chapter 12. You are prone to fear, but there's no need. Your, your fear and your anxious thoughts, they're not going to do anything productive for you. Do not be afraid. So there are four things that Jesus points to in this passage in Luke chapter 12. First of all, verse 4, we read this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. 
Jesus says, do you fear death? Do you fear those who can kill the body you need? Not fear, because death is not the worst thing imaginable. That there are things more devastating than death. Your, your real concern should be separation from God. Then in verse 11, points to the common fear for the followers of Jesus of public shame. And anxiety because they don't know how to respond or what to say in every situation. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you and will teach you what to say in those moments. So do not be afraid. You're not alone. Number three, the third thing he suggests that his followers will be prone to fear in the section just before our text today. It says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, what you will put into your body or what you will wear on your body. Yes, those are legitimate needs that we all experience, but life is more than what you eat. Life is more than what you will wear. And he goes on and says, think of the ravens. They don't have the capacity to plant crops and to harvest, and yet they are fed. Think of the lilies. They, they don't have the capacity to work and purchase clothing, and yet they are adorned in beautiful garb. God knows what you need. So he goes on, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Strive for the kingdom. You won't have any of those worries, which leads to the final fear in this passage where we are going to camp out this morning. And that is perhaps the fear that his followers will not measure up in relation to a holy, good God. And if they don't measure up, and how could they measure up, how would they ever expect to inherit the kingdom of God? You have said, seek first, strive for the kingdom of God, but how can we ever achieve that? And we read this, chapter 12, verse 32, our text for today. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It goes on, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we find this quite abrupt move in the words of Jesus from very comforting words in verse 32, do not fear, the kingdom is a gift, to the uncomfortable, I think we could all agree, the uncomfortable instructions given to his inner circle of followers, liquidate your assets, Give to help the poor. Get rid of your stuff, sell your possessions, and help the poor. And by doing this, he suggests, your money bag in heaven is going to be filled. Your, your wallet may be thinner. Your, your bank account balance is going to be lower, but your heavenly treasure will increase. And that's a treasure that can't be stolen, a treasure that can't be destroyed by moths. And one of the implications here seems to be that that radical, extreme action 
This important service given to those in need is actually going to be an aid as they seek to live a life free of fear. Because often our fears are wrapped up in our obsession with maintaining our security, maintaining security around our stuff, acquiring and acquiring and acquiring. If you can follow this extreme radical example, he seems to suggest you can live a life free of fear as your hearts and minds are freed up to now focus on the things of the kingdom. And when you can do that, some of the other cares, some of the other things that are leading to this anxiety and fear, it'll no longer feel quite as overwhelming because your perspective has shifted on what's truly important. Your life is more than what you put into your body and what you wear on your body. We're going to return to some of these ideas from verses 33 and 34 in more detail next week because those clearly involve obedience to specific instructions. There is specific action involved in living out the kingdom, kingdom life. We'll, we'll get to some of that next week, but I want to focus today just on verse 32. Fear not... Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we find here that final do not be afraid instruction in the chapter. And, and I think as we read it, we make a critical discovery uh, uh, in relation to the nature of both the kingdom and in relation to the nature of the father. The first one we've been implying since the beginning of our time today, and that is that the kingdom is a gift. It is a gift to be received, not something to earn, not something to work for. Our efforts can't do anything to help us acquire the kingdom. It's not something to build. It's not something to fight for. It is a gift to receive. We aren't responsible for building the kingdom. We don't fight for the kingdom. We aren't responsible for the success of the kingdom because the kingdom is a gift that has already been given. It is a reality that already exists that we have our eyes opened to and we simply accept it. We simply enter into the kingdom and I think this is an important distinction. Because when we begin assuming that we are responsible for the success of the kingdom of God, things will always go awry. On a personal level, we might be filled with pride, thinking, well, we have arrived. We have arrived in the kingdom because we have done X, Y, and Z. We have done things right. We have lived in an appropriate manner. And so we have gained access or entrance into the kingdom. Or things will go awry in the way we relate to others. We might begin taking matters into our own hands. We might resort to domination and control because if I am responsible for the growth of the kingdom, the ends will always justify the means because the ends are, are, are pretty dramatic. They are pretty intense. So I've got to do whatever I can to work towards that goal, whether it's coercion of others or, or forcing others or trying to make people believe and accept this way of life. And it seems that Jesus would say, no, the, the kingdom isn't something to fight for. It's a gift 
to receive. This is a distinctive. This is one of the things that makes Christianity rather unique in relation to many other world religions. In this respect, the Christian faith is sort of the anti-religion. I don't want to push that language too much. It's the anti-religion only insofar as our means of salvation, the path to salvation, is not earning. It's not achieving or progressing. As theologian Fleming Rutledge has argued, the story told throughout our Bible is not a story of human progress. As we continue to achieve and progress, we will eventually make it out of the hell that we've created. She says the the story told throughout our scriptures is always God progressing to us. God progressing to us, offering us the gift of salvation, and all we can do is accept. It is accepting a gift given to us by a good God. This is the nature of grace, the nature of the kingdom. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to gain access to the kingdom. Instead, we are drawn to this reality We are drawn by the grace of God, so through and through, it is grace. Grace drawing us. Grace offering this new reality as a gift we can enter. So any sense of morality, any sense of effort or grit, as we are referring to it in this little message, that is always a response, always a response to the gift that has been received. And I think if we invert that order, we will miss out on the central message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a gift. It is all about grace. And the Father is delighted to give this gift. So we've learned something about the nature of the kingdom. It is a gift. We can't achieve or earn it. We also learn something about the nature of our Father. Jesus says it is is his good, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This brings God delight. It brings God joy to give this free gift of the kingdom. This is the Father's heart for you. And I think it's so important that we begin seeing this as a fundamental aspect of the gospel. Because I think often there is this pervasive fear even among those who believe, even among those who have believed for a long time, a pervasive fear that God is not easily pleased. Beyond any veneer of niceties or language that we would use of love to describe God, really when you peel back those superficial layers, when you get rid of all of the rhetorical persuasive speech about the goodness of God, really at his core, God is angry ready to reveal that anger and destroy. God's angry and wants us to know it. And any kindness, any benevolence we see from God is just a bait and switch. I'm going to make you think this is what I'm like so that you'll sign on, and then I'm going to show you what I'm really like. Jesus insists This is the nature of God. God has gladly chosen to give salvation, to give the kingdom 
as a free gift. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to achieve it. It is a gift. This is how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. Over the last couple of weeks, we've spent some time jumping back to Romans 8. This is what Paul says in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is where it begins. We are children of God, and if children, Paul says, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We'll get to the last part of that statement next week. But heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. This gift is not a consolation prize. This is not the leftovers that the important people didn't want, and so the scraps are given to the lowly animals. This gift is our inheritance. Precisely because we are in Christ, children of God. Or in Matthew 25, how, how Jesus puts it as he's teaching about the final judgment, the, the judgment of the nations and the separation of the sheep and goats. And in verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God is not selling the kingdom. As much as the church has struggled to understand that, we are constantly trying to sell the kingdom. God's not selling the kingdom. God is not trading us something for the kingdom, our good behavior, so that we can receive the kingdom. God is giving. Giving. Giving the kingdom. Always giving the kingdom. This is a fundamentally different way to view salvation in our relationship to God and how salvation works as if it were a formula for us to master. So what is our responsibility in all of this? How is salvation possible? What can we do? Well, to achieve it, there's nothing. There's nothing that we can do. But as Jesus says in Luke 18, Verse 17, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It is a gift freely given, and Jesus says whoever does not simply receive the kingdom like a child. A child can do nothing to receive gifts from a parent. If you don't receive the kingdom like a child, you will not inherit it. This is the only posture in which there is salvation. We are saved as those who perceive the kingdom through the eyes of faith. We see that it is a reality, and then we receive it. We see it, our eyes are open to it, and we receive it. So is that it? Is that all there is to the Christian life? We just accept this gift and like a child on Christmas morning, we can then turn around and be a terror for the parents. Not speaking from personal experience. I just say this prayer and receive this gift and I'm in and then that's it. That The kingdom is a gift, but then there is life to live. 
There is life to live in response to that gift. Life to live as a recipient of that gift and that life is radically altered based on the gift we have received. The gift changes us. We aren't changed to get the gift, but as recipients of the gift, there is change. In the final sermon that C.S. Lewis delivered in which he spoke at length about what is required of those who choose to follow Jesus, he made this statement. What God does for us, he does in us. The process of doing it will appear to me, and not falsely, to be the daily or hourly repeated exercise of my own will in renouncing this attitude, the attitude that I am in control of my life, that I am in control of working towards my progress, the renouncing of this attitude, especially each morning, for it grows all over me like a new shell each night. Failures will be forgiven. It is acquiescence that is fatal. The permitted, regularized presence of an area in ourselves which we still claim for our own. And I think this gets at the tension that we're trying to exist with here. Jesus stresses that the kingdom of God is a gift. This is the repeated emphasis throughout this chapter in Luke. Do not worry. Do not worry. Don't be anxious. Your good father gives you good gifts. It is the father's great delight to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is a gift. It is not something to achieve. There's nothing you could ever do to achieve. It is already a reality, a reality that you simply perceive, see it through the eyes of faith, and then enter. But that notion of perceiving, that notion of entering, receiving the kingdom is one that necessitates decision and action. The kingdom is a gift. You you cannot earn it. You can't achieve it. But entering the kingdom costs us greatly. It changes our lives. It changes our outlook on life, every aspect of our lives. It is a gift. And if we can see it, if we can enter it, it calls us to a particular disposition It calls us to a particular set of actions. This is the tension, the two realities that we are seeking to hold on to at the same time. As Dallas Willard has famously said, grace, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We're going to turn our attention to this concept in more detail next week. Kevin, if you want to come up as we prepare to celebrate around the table of our Lord. And as we do, I want to conclude again with the words of Jesus from verse 32 in response to this series of questions I want to ask you. I want you to be thinking about as we come forward to the table to celebrate the gift of the kingdom. Do you struggle to believe, to really believe in the goodness of God? Do you fear that beneath the language of benevolence, beneath all that language of goodness, that God is vengeful and angry and ready to destroy 
Do you fear that you're not good enough to get in? You aren't holy enough to deserve salvation. You're not. Welcome to the club. Do you fear that you're too weak? Or that you struggle too much? Or that you're plagued with persistent doubt too much? To gain entrance, to be accepted into the kingdom. Hear these words of Jesus. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Would you stand this morning? We are going to celebrate in the next few moments around the table of our Lord, around the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We invite you to participate with us in this act of celebration, in this act of looking into our own hearts and our own minds, reflecting on where we are. We invite you on practical terms. We're going to make two lines down this center aisle. You'll come forward. There will be somebody here that offers you the bread and the cup. You'll hear these words spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements on your own and return to your seat. By way of invitation to the table, I want to say this prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us perceive the kingdom, the reality that is your reign and rule. Help us to perceive it and receive it as a child. Oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us around the table of our Lord today?